So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are more than enough for all of our needs. Lord, your grace is sufficient. Your power made perfect in weakness. Your love, that which defines us and our salvation. Your grace, overwhelming and perfect. Thank you, Father, for how much you love us. I pray as we uh, do something different tonight, that you would still be honored and glorified and that it would be useful to whoever hears it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as is common when the crowds are sparse on a Wednesday night, I tend to take a, a break. You know, we've been in First Kings a whole two weeks. It was time for a break. And uh, twice, as I started to explain, those of you on Facebook, uh, when, whoever watches this at some point, uh, but for those listening to the recording, I began to explain that twice this week, I've been asked the same question. And both times, I've given the same answer. And I'm going to go with this is the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit to this answer, and now it'll be uh, preserved. Well, I would say for all time, but until the servers crash or, you know, Jesus comes back or zombie apocalypse, I don't know, whatever. But until then, this will be preserved. It will be preserved all time in God's Word. At the end of chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, Jesus is baptized. And when he's baptized, he comes up out of the water and the heavens are opened. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In this moment, Jesus' earthly identity as the Son of God is revealed, as is the fact that Jesus, in his humanity, needed the power of the Holy Spirit to operate. Now, in his divinity, he and the Holy Spirit are equal, uh, co-equal with the Father. But in his humanity, he set aside certain parts of his divinity, and I think that in some ways was made up for by the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him, the way that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, which was Jesus' promise. And that's important, because verse 4 of a different chapter, but chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, and I want you to keep in mind, and I think I'm going to read it this way, that the word if here, it's not a question. You have to put a tone of voice behind it. If you're the Son of God. Because what that word really means is since you are the Son of God. So each of these temptations was an attempt, quite literally, to get Jesus to display his divinity. Which, throughout the Gospels, he does on multiple occasions. But doing so at the behest of Satan, well, that's not what Jesus is going to do. So verse 3 again, Since you are the Son of God, 
Command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the since, sorry, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, if you've been following us in the Luke study, I taught this uh, a great length when we went through it in Luke chapter 4. And so I'm not going to teach it in great length here. What I am going to do is point something out to answer the question that I've been asked a couple of times this week. Did I ever say what it was? No. Good. That question is, how do I avoid sin? And it's real easy to give nice Christianese glib answers. Well, if you're following Christ, you just won't sin. Yeah, that, that's how that works. Or, you know what, just try hard. Do your best. Oh, what's that horrible, horrible cliche? Uh, do your best and give God the rest. No, let God do everything. Because your best, my dear brothers and sisters, really sucks and is worthless. Feel better about yourselves? No. So real quick, and you can join me there, but I'm only going to be here for a moment. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we're told, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And I bring that up because when I taught this last time in the book of Luke, I took everybody back to the book of Genesis, way, way back to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, Satan tempts Eve the same way. In three, uh, Genesis 3, verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. So we have the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. That is the pride of life. Here, Satan uses the same tactic. Since you're the son of God, make these stones become bread. He was hungry. That would be the lust of the flesh. Since you're the son of God, throw yourself down. His angels will give his charge angels and they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Pride of life. Then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give them to you if you worship me. It's the lust of the eyes. Now, what's the difference between Jesus and Eve? Well, there's a lot. Um, but in this specific situation, the difference between Jesus and Eve is simple. Jesus did not give in to the temptation. 
The book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Now, being tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, makes him a compassionate high priest. He knows the difficulties we face. And he's gracious. But it doesn't change that Satan's tactics have not been updated since the beginning. So today, my daughter and I were playing pickleball. And we had a discussion during a couple different games that when something's not working, you change your strategy. So if every time you get a return, you hit it deep to the right-hand corner of your opponent's court, and it works a couple times, and then third, fourth, fifth time, they get it back, and it doesn't work out so well, you stop returning it there. If you've been serving to their backhand and they pick up on you, then you start serving to their forehand. If you've been hitting hard and they hit hard back, you start hitting soft. You change your tactic because your tactic is no longer working. Well, there's a really good reason that Satan has not changed his tactic since his fall. It's because it still works. When you give human beings, sinful human beings, something that appeals to their fleshly desires, they might go after it. If you give them something to see or look at or gawk at or stare at, they probably will. If you appeal to their pride, it's easy to make us fall. Because, well, human beings are dumb. No offense. The Bible says God knows our frame that we are made of dust. He knows that we are weak. And unfortunately, sin has made us that way. So the idea is of how do we do something practically in order to avoid sin is very prudent for us as followers of Christ. So we're going to start way back up in verse 1 and 2. In verse 1 and 2, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So I think the first absolute necessity for avoiding sin is being led by the Spirit and being engaged in spiritual disciplines. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. There are a lot of things that we might lump into the general category of spiritual disciplines. Uh, Reading the Bible is a spiritual discipline. Praying is a spiritual discipline. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Uh, Taking time in silence and solitude or, or meditating on God's word, that's a spiritual discipline. Listening to the word taught, that's a spiritual discipline. Worship is a spiritual discipline. Service is a spiritual discipline. So the first and very first, Jesus is led by the Spirit and he is in practice of spiritual disciplines. Now, if Jesus needed to fast and pray, if Jesus needed to be led by the Spirit, we would be absolutely foolish 
to think we could get away with any less. Over and over again, we will see Jesus, as you go through the Gospels, going into the wilderness. This word for wilderness is the aremos, and it is the desolate place or the deserted place. Jesus needed to be alone with his Father, being led by the Spirit, fasting, praying. And while he certainly had an advantage when it came to studying the Word as he is the Word, it doesn't change that he did it. Now, we're going to take one more thing out. So, when you are constantly in the practice of spiritual discipline, the various spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, fasting, praying, meditating, serving, worshiping, and you're being led by the Spirit, that does not mean that temptation will not come. And when it comes, we fight back with the Word of God. If you were to make your way up to Ephesians 6, which you don't have to do, there is listed for us the full armor of God, things like the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and feet that are shod with the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith, so on and so forth. But amongst the the, um, pieces of the armor of God, there are two offensive weapons. Everything else is for defense. A breastplate was to protect your chest and your heart and your vital organs. A belt was to hold everything together. Shoes, if, if you stepped on something sharp and you had bad shoes, you were in trouble in war. Your shield was to protect you from the blows of the enemy. The helmet was to protect your head or your mind. But it's great to be able to have defensive weapons But you also have to be able to have an offensive weapon. And there's two offensive weapons listed there for us in Ephesians chapter 6. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and prayer. Here, Jesus pulls out the sword of the Spirit, and he fights back. It is written, it is written, it is written. Now, Satan tried to twist the word of God, but still it is written. All of these quotes from Jesus are from the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. But those are our offensive weapons, the word of God and prayer. So there we go. We know what temptation looks like. We know we need to be spirit filled. We know we need to be led by the spirit. We know that we need to be practicing various spiritual disciplines. We know that even if we are prayed up, fasted up, read up, meditated up, filled and led by the Holy Spirit, the temptation is still going to come. So what else do you need? We're good, right? Well, this is where that question became a challenge for me from the two different individuals who asked it. Okay, so we have this. Great, but what do we do? And I think we take three steps. Practical steps. Step number one, if we're trying to avoid sin, we cut it off. Whether that is the, the going someplace or opening this app or talking to that person or thinking this thought, whatever it is, we cut it off. Second, we get accountability. Third, we replace it. Now, for anybody who is familiar 
with various psychological theories. What I'm about to share with you uh, is very much in line with what we call cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Um, and to a lesser degree in line with DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, they, they work together, but um, cognitive behavioral therapy is that what you think comes out in what you do. Uh, dialectical behavioral therapy is similar, but you talk to yourself. Which, hey, if you're in therapy, you're already crazy, so why not talk to yourself? That was meant to be funny. No, it really wasn't. No, and dialectical behavioral therapy isn't that simple. It's more about using self-talk to replace negative thoughts, which then lead to behaviors that we want to deal with. So number one, cut it off. Just turn right over to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be up around verse 27. You have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So we have to ask the, the blatant question because I'm one of those people that if you ask me, I will tell you we always take the Bible literally unless the Bible gives us permission not to. So is Jesus here literally teaching us to rip out our eyeballs and cut off our hands? And I don't think so. And this is why. If I pluck out my right eye, which is actually, I, I see worse out of my right eye anyway, uh, but if I pluck out my right eye, I still have my left eye can get in plenty of trouble with one eye. And if I plucked out both eyes, well, there's enough floating around in my brain that I could still get into trouble. Plucking out my eyes isn't going to do the job. What about my right hand? Right? If I cut off my right hand, I can still sin with my left hand. Maybe not as efficiently, but I can still sin with my left hand, unless, of course, you're left-handed. Uh, if I cut off both hands, is that really going to stop me from sinning? No. What Jesus is teaching us, I believe, is that we are to deal harshly with sin. We're to cut it off. If hanging out with that person tempts me to sin, then I'm going to stop hanging out with that person. If spending time on the internet is going to cause me to sin, then I'm going to limit the ways or stop spending time on the internet altogether. If watching certain movies is going to cause me to sin, then I'm going to stop it. If having certain conversations, listening to certain music, watching certain reality shows, spending time in certain places, right? whatever it is, get rid of it. Treat it like a cancer. Treat it like the cancer that it is. If you have cancer, say you found a tumor, or the doctor found a tumor, or maybe you found it, I don't know. And the doctor says, you know what, we need to cut that tumor out. Nah, let's leave it there and see what happens. Or let's, let's just get rid of part of it. We'll keep the part that's socially acceptable, but get rid of the rest. What, what part of a tumor is socially acceptable? Well, in our world, there are many sins that are socially acceptable. Many things aren't even seen as sin any longer. But the point is, 
You cut out the whole tumor because that's the only way to get rid of it. You have to cut out the sin. Craig Groeschel, uh, he uses a great illustration. He says people like to see how close to the line they can get without stepping over, right? Well, if this is, this is the line where sin is, can I get my toe close to it? Can I lean over it as long as my foot doesn't actually, you know, go into the kitchen? Can I? And he says, well, instead of doing that, find out where the line is and then draw yourself another line that's way far back. Because if you don't get close to the line, it's really hard to fall over. But you have to deal harshly with sin. You can't play with it. You can't pretend it's okay. You can't coddle it. You can't give it a foot in the door. You know, you meet those people in your life that they love to take advantage of others. And that's the, the proverb that if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Well, sin will do the same thing. If you give sin an inch, it won't just take a mile. It'll take a marathon. And if it's unrepented of, It'll eventually take your life. So number one, cut it off. As Dave Coulier used to say, you guys remember Dave Coulier? Well, you don't. My daughter doesn't. Dave Coulier was famous. Uh, I don't know why. He wasn't very funny. But he was famous. Sorry, Dave Coulier, if you're watching this. I loved Full House. I I just don't think your stand-up's all that great. Um, But he used to have a joke. And I don't know why people found it funny, but he would go, cut it out. Cut it out, right? That's stupid. But for the, but for the um, purpose of our message, cut it out. Number two, accountability. Follow me, if you would, to the book of James, chapter 5. Now, when we sin, 1 John 1, 9 tells us, That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess to God for forgiveness and cleansing. But James chapter 5 verse 16 tells us this. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, When we're told here to confess to one another, we are not going into the little booth on Saturday afternoon at the Catholic Church. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Uh, I I was talking to one of you two. I don't remember which one. That I've always had a great desire. This is wrong. Don't do it. But I've always had a great desire because a Catholic priest cannot repeat anything that's told to to him in confession. I've always thought it would be really fun to go in there and, uh, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, and then start confessing a string of heinous crimes, murders and and thievery and, um, you know, talking at the theater. Now, don't do it. And I will never, ever do it because that would be wrong. Kind of funny, but wrong. So that's not the kind of confession we're talking about. Because you go to God for forgiveness. You don't have to go to a man. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And no priest and no saint and no Mary or anybody else can be an intermediary between you and God. Jesus 
alone fills that role. So we go to God through Christ. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But then we confess our trespasses to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed because the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So why do we confess to one another? Is it because everybody in the world needs to know everything that I've ever done wrong? No. It's for the sake of accountability. And that's number two. You cut off the sin, then you find someone to be, someone you trust, someone who cares about you, to hold you accountable. This is a person that can come up to you and ask you and say, hey, you've been drinking today? And you're going to be honest with them. Yeah, you know what? I made a mistake. I, I, I had, you know, three beers at lunch or whatever. I don't know. Or, or whatever the sin is that you need accountability for, somebody can ask you that question. And you're not going to lie to them. Because that level of accountability, knowing that somebody's going to ask you that question, and knowing that you have to be honest with that person when they ask you that question, well, that's going to help you wherever it is that you cut that sin off, it's going to help you leave it there. And if you do blow it, then you have somebody who loves you enough to confront you, who loves you enough to help restore you and get you back on the right track. And hopefully they're going to do that as they are spirit-led, as they are practicing the spiritual disciplines. And as they get you back on the right path, they're going to get you back on the path with Jesus. So cut it off. Accountability and replace it. Follow me back to Romans chapter 12. Now when I say replace it, I don't mean take some horrible sin and replace it with a sin that's not so bad. You know, so if uh, if you're out there and uh, you, you are sexually addicted and, and you're hiring prostitutes and, and you're having sex this that way in every way that you can think of. Cutting back to just watching porn, right? That's not, that's not a positive step. You know, yeah, you know what? I, I, I used to drink. I was destroying my liver. It was ruining my marriage. So I decided to give that up and now I just smoke weed. Uh Uh-huh. So you're still stupid. And you didn't listen to steps one and two. Clearly, you didn't cut off the sin. And clearly, you don't have anybody keeping you accountable. So don't replace it with something bad. Replace it with something good. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, if you go talk to somebody who, uh, you go to your doctor, and you want help to quit smoking, they might give you a prescription to help you. But for most people who smoke, they have uh, what Freud called an oral fixation. Now, 98.5% of what Freud said or thought up was pure bunk. Um, But I think there's something to be said because I'm a person who's very orally fixated. I drink a lot of coffee or I eat a lot or whatever it might be to, uh, if if my mouth isn't busy, it's getting itself in trouble. So, um, I definitely have that issue. So if you want to quit smoking, you got to do something else. 
So I've met people that they started chewing gum. Maybe it was nicotine gum, maybe it was bubblicious, but whatever the case, they started chewing gum. Uh, I've never met anybody who quit smoking and didn't gain weight because they started eating more. Um, or I, I heard someone uh, once made the suggestion, sugar-free suckers. Because that's something you can keep in your mouth. You have the same sensation of, of putting the sucker in your mouth and taking it back out like you do with a cigarette. But whatever it is, you replace it with something good. Say you're addicted to your phone. And I know nobody who's hearing this has been addicted to their phone. So you have to replace it. So what I've done is I've set up timers on my phone. I set up downtime on my phone. So I have a very limited amount of time to spend on social media. Very limited amount of time to spend on news apps and whatnot. And then what I did, uh, and this just happened a couple months ago, because I did this once, probably about a year ago, year and a half ago, and I did really good for a while, and then I found myself getting caught in the social media again. Uh, and then my, my daughter turned me on to doing crossword puzzles on my phone. So now I have everything else shut off, except for my crossword puzzle app, New York Times crossword puzzle app, five bucks a month. And when I have the need to do something on my phone, actually, there's two apps I use. Um, and I don't need to be on social media. I've already checked my social media. I've already checked my email. I already know what the temperature is outside or whatever else it might be. I either go to the Abide app, and the Abide app is a Christian meditation app uh, where they, it's about a five-minute meditation, uh, and it's absolutely fantastic. So I'll either do that or I open my New York Times crossword puzzle app and I work on my crossword. So that allows me to have my phone in my hand without doing something that is mind-numbing. So take something bad and replace it with something good. If you don't, it's too easy for the bad to come back. I told you to turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So cut it off. Get rid of it. Matthew 5.30. Have accountability. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another. For the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then replace it. Renew your mind. The primary way we renew our mind is by the word of God, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in each of us. We renew our mind through the, the spiritual disciplines that we talked about earlier. But we renew our mind, and by renewing our mind, we renew our behavior. Oh, that's too easy. I, no, it's not. Our brain has a beautiful thing known as neuroplasticity. Scientists used to think um, that your brain reached a specific stage of development and then it stopped. Now, granted, your brain probably doesn't get any bigger. Uh, if your brain is getting bigger, see a doctor. But what neuroplasticity taught us, what, what the scientists figured out, is that you can continue to learn. And whatever is reinforced in your brain you learn more and more and more and more. This is how, say, we memorize a verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? You repeat that verse enough. You remind yourself of that verse enough. You read that verse enough. And it creates a neural pathway in your brain where that verse now lives. Oh, well, how many neural pathways are there? Billions. 
So if you have, say, a negative thought life, I don't know if anybody else is like that, but I have that problem. Well, the problem is the more you repeat a negative thought to yourself, the more you dwell on it, the more ingrained that neural pathway becomes. So you can't just stop thinking that thought because doing so, your brain literally won't let you do it. What you have to do is you have to give it a different path to follow. And so every time that thought comes up, you think something else. This is the heart of cognitive behavioral therapy. And when you think that other thought, you reinforce a new neural pathway. Now, the more you reinforce the new neural pathway and the less you reinforce the old neural pathway, well, the old neural pathway will get weaker and weaker and the new neural pathway will get stronger and stronger. Take somebody who has played a sport for any length of time and then all of a sudden you don't play that sport for a year. You know, it's still in there, but you're not going to be as good as you were when you stopped playing the year earlier. Or a musical instrument. I, I great example. Uh, when I was a teenager and I played bass and I played in jazz band and all of that stuff, I could sight read music. You could put a piece of music in front of me and I could play it. Maybe not flawlessly, but I could play it. All I really had to do was practice it a couple times and then I could pretty much play it flawlessly. If you put a piece of music in front of me today, well, I could tell you what the notes were after I sat there and thought about it for a while. But I could not sight read. I can't sight read anymore because I stopped practicing it. So that neural pathway got weaker. Have I made the point? Replace it with something good. If it's a negative thought, find a positive thought. If it's a negative behavior, find the negative thought or negative emotion that's leading to that negative behavior and address that in order to then cut off the behavior and find accountability for it. But whatever the case, I think it was Einstein that said, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It's no different when we're trying to avoid sin. Because if you keep going the same places, you keep visiting the same websites, you keep having the same thoughts, the same conversations, you keep hanging out with the same people, and you can't figure out why you can't cut this sin off in your life. Or maybe you're trying to cut this sin off in your life on your own, not being led by the Holy Spirit, not being engaged in the spiritual practices, not asking someone to hold you accountable. Well, then you're doing the same thing, but hoping for a different result. Let Jesus, as with all things in our lives, be our example. He was led by the Spirit. He was engaged in spiritual disciplines. He fought back with the word of God. He taught us to cut sin off. He even taught us the whole idea of accountability when he sent his disciples out two by two, but James makes that a lot more specific. And he even taught us the concept of renewing our mind when he told us how that it's what it's from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So what's inside of us is what comes out. So if what you want coming out is different, then you have to be putting something different in. And when it comes to avoiding sin, I, I don't think there's another recipe. I think ultimately, 
If you break the shackles of a specific sin, that is because God has done that work. You can't do it by yourself. It has to be empowered by the Spirit of God. God has done that work. But if you keep running to that sin, no matter how much God wants to set you free from it, if you keep running to that sin, he's going to respect your really stupid decision. Or, I keep saying you, my really stupid decision. Cut it off. Find accountability. And exchange it for something good. By the renewing of your mind, letting the Holy Spirit empower you and lead you, and the Word of God teach you and guide you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your Word. Thank you that you gave me a couple people in my life who asked me this question and made me think about it and made me think of the best way to respond to it. And thank you that I was able to share it. I hope that it's beneficial for somebody who hears it. As we go about the rest of our week, I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.